Morning, church. If you are able, can you stand for the reading of God's word? God's word comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You can seat, take a seat. Love is a verb. It ain't a thing. It's not something you own. It's not something you scream. When you show me love, I don't need your words. Yeah, love ain't a thing. Love is a verb. Love ain't a thing. Love is a verb. So you gotta show, show, show me. Show, show, show me. Show, show, show me that love is a verb. John Mayer is correct in asking for such love. Where do you see, where do you get that kind of love? I want to say that kind of love, a love not only demonstrated in action, but also to the most undeserving sinners, a love so sacrificial and pure is only found in God. We see it in the way God sent his son, Jesus, to die as the atoning sacrifice for our sins on the cross so that we may be united to him. We've seen already in 1 John chapter 3 that he had mentioned that Christ had sent come in the flesh 
so that we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And that's our kind of fellowship. We have been united with God through Christ. My main point, my proposition today, that the love of God is the basis of our union with Christ and God, and joy is the only motivation that will lead us to grow in holiness. By the way, the, the epistle of John is like a choral, choral symphony. It has repetitions and movements, you know, like uh, the Handel's Messiah. We, have, we sing during the Advent season, right? Hallelujah, right? The emphasis is on the first syllable, and it's repeated again and again, like, King of kings, Lord of lords, right? So you, I, I encourage you to read this epistle as many times as you can and see thoughts, phrases, and arguments that are repeated. You'll find it very surprising. John writes it in different ways, comes back to the same theme, emphasizes it. So read it as many times. We have nine more weeks of, on this particular episode. I have three points in the sermon today. First one, the gospel transformation, verses 1 and 2. We'll take the major portion of my sermon on that. Just wants to give you a heads up. Second point, our transformation affects our personal morality. And there is a test John is giving us in verses 3 through 6. Third point, our transformation affects our public or social morality. And there is a test for that in verses 7 through 11. Gospel transformation. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Apostle Paul may be 80 years old when he is writing this letter to mainly Greek-speaking churches possibly addressing an issue in the church that has been affecting called a heresy called Gnosticism. Here we see the senior apostle, John, calls the recipients or the disciples of him as little children very endearingly. We know when you call someone a child, it's a very relational, personal term. John calls them children because he knows that he has a relationship with these people through Christ. I had already mentioned that they have fellowship with one another and with the Father and the Son. And he writes this letter so that they may know that they have this fellowship, that their joy may be full. We We saw that a couple of weeks ago. Though that may be true, John is continuing to deal with the problem of sin in the lives of Christians like us today. Yes, we become children of God when we believe in Christ and come to know God. Yet there is the sinful nature within us. 
Tim Keller illustrates this problem of sin and the awareness of sin in the lives of believers comparing to a bear that is shot in its leg. A bear that is shot in, uh, in the wilderness is fearsome, right? We all know that. But when it is shot in the leg, it is deadly dangerous. Before we were Christians, we were dead in our sin. We did not know, we had no awareness of the, the deadly work of sin and its corruption. But when we were given the new birth through the Holy Spirit, we were regenerated. God gives us a new nature. And the old sinful nature is mortally wounded, shot, and crucified with Christ. But it's not fully dead. Like a mortally wounded bear, it's alive and dangerous. Paul writes this in Romans 7 this way, I delight in the law, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We may find ourselves like Paul crying out when we realize our sinfulness. John has already mentioned how we should confess our sins. We saw that last week, Pastor Stan talked about that. Then God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1. We saw that's not a life of sinlessness, but a life increasingly in a life in, in, where in, increasingly we sin less and less and grow more and more like Jesus Christ. In verse, he say, in verse 1, he says he is writing so that we may not sin. We grow in holiness by worshipping a Savior who is our advocate and an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We grow in our sanctification by beholding Jesus Christ who is interceding for us at the right hand of God on behalf of us for our sins, for our sins that we commit. Jesus Christ serves on our defense like an advocate, paracleton, one who walks along or comforts. Like an attorney in a court of law, speaking on our behalf, we know attorneys can defend criminals on the, uh, based on the legal principle that one is innocent until proven guilty. Here, Jesus pleads our case pro bono, that means without any fee, knowing that we are guilty and not innocent. Yet, he is called righteous because, because he paid the perfect sacrifice that's needed, fully paid for our sins. Here, John brings out the Old Testament practice, Jewish practice of sacrifice or animal sacrifice for the cleansing and atonement of our sins. Theological term that's used here, actually used in ESV, is propitiation. 
In the NIV, it's called the atoning sacrifice. Propitiation is an act in which God is enabled to welcome or accept sinners into his presence. Why was the sacrificial system introduced in the Old Testament? We saw that in the reading, scripture reading today. And who introduced it? The sacrificial system in the Old Testament serves two purposes, enabling the sinful man to draw near to God. The animal sacrifice was part of the covenantal obligation or the condition of the covenant that God made with man. We see very early on in the Bible God relating to man in loving relationships that are called covenants. God always initiates the covenants, whether it's with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, or David. And God lays down the stipulations. That means the blessings, the conditions or obligations, and the consequences, the blessings or curses associated with the covenant. That means God gets to define how he should be approached and worshipped. So the functions of the, covenant, uh, the sacrificial system or animal sacrifice are first to cleanse or remove the guilt and pollution of our sins. Second is to appease God's righteous indignation or anger against our rebellion. This does not mean the atonement Christ paid for our sins is like the pagan sacrifices to pacify a capricious God. Pagan gods are thought to be angry and unpredictable. It's not the case with Yahweh at all. Because we see God, Yahweh, making covenants, renewing covenants after covenants, as the people of God broke those covenants. Prophets like Jeremiah, Micah, Amos, and Isaiah prophesied against such violations against God. In fact, if you read the Bible carefully, God wasn't God was detesting these meaningless sacrifices many times the people brought before God. It was a stench in his nostrils. But it is God who initiates these covenants out of love, not because of anger. We can see this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love is an attitude that determines what one does. James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, says that. God's love for us is the basis and cause for sending Christ to be the atoning sacrifice that we may draw near to God who is light, and in him there is no darkness. The holy God, who is just and loving at the same time, sends his Son so that the, the righteous indignation, anger that is to fall upon us will come upon him so that we may draw near to God. We are not called to, into God's presence to stay as servants. God gives us the right to become his children. We see, we see that in 1 John, 
he, uh, 3, chapter, uh, verse 1, he says, See what kind the love God the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Who is a God like this? He sends his son to die for the sake on our behalf as an atoning sacrifice and then raises him up from the grave to plead our case so that we become his children. Not only us, but also the whole world, he says. Meaning now that the Gentiles can also come to God and be part of his family. Likewise, people from all over the world who will hear Jesus in the future and believe and become part of his family like us today. The resurrected Lord Jesus is our advocate who is actively at this present moment interceding for us, for me by my name. Pleading for Bo, who is not here, he just left. Appealing for Pastor Stan, he's preaching at another church. Interceding for Sun Young, Martha, Andy, Paulette, even as I speak. Charles Wesley, the 18th century hymn writer, co-founder of Methodist Movement, writes, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh forgive him, they cry. No, let the ransom sinner die. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Yes, Jesus is interceding for each one of us by name right now before the throne of God. What a comforter and advocate we have in Jesus. So now you may wonder and say, how about this unconditional love that God promises? Won't it promote laxity, indifference, and backsliding? I'd say it does the opposite. That means the degree to which we understand the unconditional love of God in Christ laying down his life for us as an atoning sacrifice and now interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God would move us towards growth in holiness. If this kind of love would not melt our hearts into joy so that we are moved to a life in which we sin less and less, what would? Fear, shame, anxiety. These are the other motives to promote obedience. Fear of punishment, of getting fined or getting, a, um, getting our license revoked may stop you from running a red light or avoiding a speed camera or a cop. But fear, shame, and anxiety are, got, are not good motivations to, to obey such a loving God, a covenant-keeping God who had forgiven all our sins past, present, and future. They have no power in the pursuit of holiness 
fear, shame, and anxiety, I can tell you, they can cripple and paralyze us in our walk in holy, holiness with God. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Uh, I read a story to illustrate this point. Um, I've been reading uh, Boyce, um, who was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He is writing about a story that um, his predecessor pastor was uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was actually um, counseling a young man in his congregation. This young man was uh, a, a professor in a, a, a prominent university in Philadelphia, but in his previous life, he was, it's during the Second World War time, he was, uh, he was a, an army officer stationed in France, but he fell in bad company, so he ended up living a, um, a lifestyle of gross, gross sin in, in France. But he returned. When he returned, he was converted, and uh, he was worshiping in Philadelphia, and he was dating a young woman, and, um, but um, he, he loved her and he wanted to marry her, but he had this fear in him that he would, he would go back to sin and offend this woman and wound her deeply. So he went for counseling. The pastor encouraged him to tell his past life so that they should, you know, this woman needs to hear about it so that they can, they can know everything about it. Um, but still this man hesitated. So the pastor tells the story during his counseling session. He says, uh, he relates the story about something happened previously in, in, in his counseling. Some time ago, he said, I dealt with a man whose story was much, not much different from yours. He too had lived a life of sin and had been converted under conditions similar to those existing in a rescue mission. He had then married a fine Christian woman to whom he had briefly told his sordid story. He said that after he had told his wife this, she kissed him and replied, John, I want you to understand something very plainly. I know my Bible well, and I know something of the workings of Satan. I know that you are a thoroughly converted man, John, but I know, I know that, that you have an old nature to which Satan will certainly appeal. He will do all that he can to put temptations on your way. That day may come. I pray that it will never shall. Then when you shall succumb to temptations and fall into sin, immediately the devil will tell you that you have ruined everything, that you might as well continue in sin, and that above all, that you should not tell me because it will hurt me. But John, I want you to know that this is your home. This is where you belong. I want you to know that there is full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that may come into your life. As Dr. Barnhouse told this story, the professor lowered his head into his hands. But when Barnhouse reached the end, the young man lifted his head 
and said reverently, My God, if anything could keep a man straight, that would be it. I might move on to my second point, that here in verses 3 through 6, John gives a personal morality test. Verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Having presented the gospel on how we should grow in holiness, John now gives us a test how we know that we know God. We can see John is also confronting the Gnosticism, the heresy that, that was coming into the church. Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, knowing or knowledge. It was a heretical movement in the second century, century church. According to Gnostics, Christ was sent by a remote supreme God as an, as an emissary. Gnostics claimed that they had secret knowledge of Christ that enabled them the redemption of their souls or their spirits. Another variant of Gnosticism is heavily relied on mystic experiences, feelings, and emotions as an evidence for knowing God, for true knowledge of God. Here, John confronts both forms of, forms of Gnosticism, one that relied on intellectual secret knowledge of Christ, and the other one that relied on mystic experiences and emotions and feelings. John challenges this erroneous teaching by stating, if you claim to know God, you need to have a life of obedience to his commandments. First, John gives us a positive affirmation, saying, if you know God then you should keep his commandments. Here John connects the being of person to his doing. If you claim to know God, you should be doing what he commands. J.I. Packer and Boyce says, we can know a lot about God, yet not know God personally. True knowledge of God is neither pure intellectual contemplation no mere emotional exuberance. True knowledge results in practical obedience. Then John, John argues negatively. If someone says he knows God but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. John doesn't mean, mince words here. He was called the son of thunder. The second, this faulty type of second type of person is someone who says, I have the being, but doesn't have proper doing. Whoever keeps Jesus' commandments grows and his love of God is perfected in his life. Pay attention to that phrase. Love of God is perfected. That's repeated in this episode a number of times. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You may wonder what kind of commandments are we talking about? Is it just rules keeping? 
Keep that thought in your mind. We will come to that. Now in verse 6, John says, If we say we are united to Christ, and if we have any part in Christ, we should walk like Jesus walked. Personally, this verse 6 hit me very sharply as a challenge. I have been introduced to this doctrine of union with Christ in, in the seminary, and I have been very much touched by it. Ever since then, union with Christ has been the favorite part of gospel for me. I bought five books on this topic and started reading, finished three, and now I'm on the fourth one. Yet none of them hit me like this verse, challenging me to reflect upon Jesus, how he walked, and how I should follow him. How did Jesus walk? We see John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not that kind of, certainly not that kind of walking and following you and I are called to do. But Jesus, the Son of God, was filled with the knowledge and assurance of his Father's love and his identity as his Son. He heard deeply that in his inner being, that he is, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are, through the redeeming work, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we have been made into sons and daughters of God through Christ. We have status before God, and we have been united with Christ and God the Father loves us even as he loves his only begotten Son. Therefore, Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, I in them and you in me, they, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Such a union with God and his Son Jesus should fill us with joy that we may walk as Jesus walked. In a TED Talk, David Brooks says, happiness is the expansion of self, whereas joy is the dissolvement of self. David Brooks is right, and we can apply him in the context of joy, in, in forgetting oneself, in the service and care of another. This is the joy God gives us when we know that we abide in him and his love abides in us. When we are secure in the love of God and the identity God gives us as his sons and daughters, as his children, we are free to serve, sacrificially love, and forgive others. This takes me to the third, my final point. In verse 6 and 8, he writes, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John says, with the coming of Christ, the true light of the world, the old commandment, finds 
new degree of expression. We see Jesus himself says in John, John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, 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 all, you also ought to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John has not only, sorry, Jesus has not only taught uh, how to love one another through parables and sermons, but he demonstrates it. In the way he invited sinners and outcasts and he, the way he interacted with them. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a good example that when we love with such love, it's costly. It costs time. It costs money. It costs pride and reputation. Here, Christ, the perfect Good Samaritan, lays down his life for us by becoming a curse for us, willingly be separated the union he had with his Father. He did this to bring us close to God. He is the true elder brother who willingly, sacrificially traded his place so that the prodigal sons and daughters like us can come to the Father's presence, into the family. I want to bring some applications, draw some applications. Do we know the love of God in the atoning death of Jesus Christ and his intercessory ministry for us? Do we walk in delight? Are we walking in delight and joy? Contemplation in contemplation of the love that God has shown us graciously to sinners like this, like us. Does this joy lead us to love our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? We just saw the planned video. I, I noticed the joy in each of their stories, the people who were sharing stories. That's the kind of joy that drives us to love others who are different from us, neighbors and brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who are different, who may have different political and theological views, do we love in action toward them? Do we have hearts that are filled with actions, um, love with action for people who disrespect us, who may have mistreated us historically because we were part of a different race, nationality, or ethnicity? Do we harbor hatred and anger or our hearts bask in love because God has loved us this way and graciously shown us and forgives us and intercedes for us? Do we confess our sins to one another? Finally, do we say that we know God because we read theology and sing so wonderfully praise songs and play instruments? Or do we say we know and love God because we heartily obey God and love our brothers and sisters in actions? 
We have intellect-only and cerebral-only Christianity and emotion-only Christianity in the church today. Conservatives are known for their private and personal morality, and the liberals boast about their public and social morality. But true knowledge of Jesus cuts through both. I want to end, finally, nine verses 9 and 11. He says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We talked about being and doing. Here, John is talking about the close connection. If you, the first person is saying that he, is, he has a being, but his doing is contradicting. He's a living contradiction. The other person is saying that I am, other person has the right doing and she loves his brother and sister, therefore her being lines up with her doing. These days I wake up early. Um, I wake up sometimes before 5 a.m. and I walk out to our porch, which faces the east, and I see the sun, sun, the day break, sunlight breaking through the trees, among the trees. And the other sides, other directions I look, it's pretty dark. Can you imagine a reality one day, one side of Baltimore, the day breaks into dawn and the daylight comes on and the other side gets darker and darker and darker and you are at the time of the daybreak facing the option whether to go into the darkness or go into the light. John says, if you know Jesus, the true light of the world, you are already in the light, walking in the light by loving, loving obedience and actions. And your loving obedience and actions contribute to the light of the day. But on the other hand, if you are hating your brother and sister, you are walking further and further into darkness, not knowing where you are going. It was the case with Cain, who murdered his brother Abel. And your darkness is contributing to the darkness, and it grow, grows further into darkness. It's a sobering reality. If you are here today, and you wonder who loves you, I consider, I would invite you to consider Jesus, who had laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and my sin. And he is interceding at the right hand of God so that your sins may, may be forgiven, that you may be accepted before God. I want you to talk to one of us, the leaders, elders, deacons, women leaders. We will pray with you and explain to you what we are talking about here. And if you are a Christian struggling with sin as I do, remember Jesus is our advocate who is walking alongside us, interceding on our behalf right at this moment by our name so that we will be delivered and overcome our sins. Christ has fully paid on the cross the penalty we owe for the sins we have committed so that we can be united with him. 
How can we go on sinning against such a loving God willingly? May we walk in the light as Jesus. He is the true light of the world, confessing our sins to one another. And let us behold the beauty of our Savior, who laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice, and right now raised again for our justification and sanctification and interceding on our behalf. Let's pray. Father God, we are at amazement at your wonderful sacrifice, Lord. On our behalf, undeserving sinners, Lord, such grace that you have shown us. Help us, O God, to understand this and be transformed by your love. We pray that that we would walk in joy in contemplation of the, of the union that we have with you, Lord, with you and your Father, and with one another, Lord. Help us to confess our sins to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.